0: You're listening to the Scottish Football Forums Podcast, the home of Scottish Football Banter.
1: Hello and welcome to Season 10, Episode 14 of Scottish Football Forums Podcast. I'm Good John and um, I'm delighted to be joined by another special guest, former Air United Dundee Aberdeen, Kilmarnock, um, back to Queen of the South midfielder, and Scotland International, Robert Connor. Robert, thank you very much for um, coming on.
0: A pleasure, John. great to be here. You missed out Partick Thistle. At the very oh, yeah, the two game stint, yeah. yeah. I was there for a month with John McVeigh, who trained me up and down hills until I couldn't run anywhere and then let me go. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I we, was we, actually John Martin on last week's and um, maybe he came up quite a few times. Um, he must have been a character to work for.
0: Well, I think if you've ever been uh, a player with John or, or played under him as a manager or a coach, you'll always have a, a memory of one sort or another.
1: <laughs> and yours is running up and down a hill.
0: Running up and down hills, yeah. Right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> that must have been fun in your late thirties. Um, as I say, delighted to get you on. So, um, you know, obviously we're in an uncertain world just now. How are you keeping with it all?
0: Yeah, we're keeping fine. Uh, um, I've been, I think I've actually had it in December, to be honest. So I was in my bed for three days and never. Really? I mean, I can count one hand a number of times that I've been off work. Or I've been ill in the last 20 years. But uh, I was in my bed for three days uh, with all the symptoms as COVID, you know, um, really high temperature, coughing constantly. So uh, uh, I think uh, without knowing whether that was it or not, it certainly was all the, uh, the symptoms. So if you get antibodies and you can't get it anymore, I think uh, I'll be okay for now <laughs>
1: Yeah, let's hope so. Um, so we can blame you for it hitting in Scotland.
0: Well, a, a guy I work with here came back from Thailand in December um, and he came over to where I'm sitting now and did the biggest sneeze I've ever heard in my life without covering his mouth. The whole place. It was like that film, remember that hooch film with the big dog with the big slevers coming? Uh-huh. It was like that, slavers everywhere all over me, all over the computer, everything. And within two days I was in my bed no wheel, so I think that's where it's uh, originated from.
1: Oh dear, so we'll just blame him for coming back. Yeah. Um but how has um, you know how how's your workplace been affected um since uh, you know the pandemic hit? Well
0: we were closed you. for we were closed for uh four months, uh the construction sites in Scotland. Um were all closed. Uh, we've got an office in Rotherham as well and that was affected a bit, but uh, just slightly because all the construction sites down south stayed open. So um, it was like uh, two different worlds, never mind two different countries, although we're supposed to be the same countries as such in the UK. But um, So we were affected pretty badly and uh, in Scotland, but uh, we have came through the other end of that and everybody's back to work again now, so I'm just it's the uncertainty just now because obviously there's more talk of closing down and all the rest of it, so just have to play it be here.
1: Yeah, I think we're all in the same We're all on the same boat, unfortunately, one way or another. I mean, you just don't know. I mean, cases, I know they rose on Tuesday again to like 800 odd. No further deaths thankfully, um, but you just don't know what's going to happen next. And um, right now from a football point of view, um, Aberdeen-Ross County had test events and then all of a sudden they were stopped. Um, the Scotlands um, game against Israel next week that was supposed to be a sellout, that's no longer um, going to have fans at it. And then lower league clubs there's a big uncertainty with the season starting next week and there's no sign the fans come back anytime soon maybe f- until 2021 at the very least
0: yeah I mean it's uh, it's uh, it couldn't be any worse really I mean football is all about the fans the fans make the game so um, playing in empty stadiums is is uh, <laughs> it's just just like a training game we used to have training games in the stadium Um, with nobody there and the lack of atmospheres uh, is something it's a totally different environment but I mean, got to take your hats off to the players that are playing at the moment there's some good games still and uh, I thought the the Champions uh, League final there was a really good game high tempo um, and it's no easy in the circumstances without the fans generating a good atmosphere so uh, got to take your hat off to the players that can uh, perform at the highest level, you know.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the highest level they can obviously, obviously do that. They they've got the money to do the regular testing. But we're talking about in the league cup that that's um, obviously starting back next week. Um, when I was speaking to Dave ian's he was saying they do temperature checks at muir They can't afford the um the full testing. And then you had the command manager saying, well, if they're going to be playing us, um we want them all fully tested. I mean, Ross County, to be fair, are funding a couple of their opponents, but it's just real uncertain times, and you just wonder if the leagues have um, are asking a bit much um, for a full season here.
0: Yeah, well, it's a different level, even in the Premier League in Scotland, because they don't get the funding that they get down south. I mean, the English no. Premiership is kind of insulated a wee bit for us because of the TV money they get, but I mean, I'm sure even they'll be feeling it because... Um, gate money and sponsorship on the day, that type of thing uh, is is important for them as well. But uh, the other side of the coin is the lower leagues up here um, who basically live uh, on their gate money uh, as well as supported by some sponsorship and the the little TV money that they do get. I don't know how much they get nowadays, but I don't imagine it's, it's very much. So, I don't. I think it's a, a struggle, really. I mean, if 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 you can't play football, and this furlough, when the furlough finishes, then uh, I think there'll be a lot of teams really struggling, which is which is a shame. But um, and as we talked about earlier on, it's an uncertainty of the thing. Nobody seems to have a grip on how best to live with us yet. You, you know, there's are you, back in pubs and you're back in restaurants and you're back visiting your friends then all of a sudden that's all off the table again and you're although it's been quite a few months now that we've been here and we know a lot more about the virus it's uh there doesn't seem to be a real strategy anywhere in europe of how to best live with this.
1: yeah i think i think that's key from well i certainly believe that um there needs to be a point where we need to learn to live with what, what's out there we can't just sit in for forever I mean I get what they're doing just now to try and get the numbers back down um, but at some point they are going to ha- um, they are going to have to find a way to live with us because it's um, it's not going to weigh any time soon but we'll save that for another day um, let's take you back to um, the good old days of your playing career um, starting way back um, before I was born so i rub it in um, Air United um, good learning curve well no. Can
0: I address that first? Because I can actually see you. There's no way you weren't born when I first started playing. <laughs> <laughs> I know listeners are just listening, but I can actually see your face right now, so. unless <laughs> you have the hard paper around one or two. Um
1: Thanks Robert. So, do you see where you get me back?
0: <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, back in the uh, in the good the, the good old days as everybody says, I eh? uh, I joined Air United in seventy seven. Mm-hmm. Alex Stewart was a manager and um, Hello. I get brought Hello. into from the United Boys Club Hello. and taken into play in the reserves that it was at the time um, and uh, that's where you started in those days started to learn about how to play football through the Boys Club uh, times, it wasn't youth set-ups or youth uh, Systems as they, they call it say? now, but uh, just boys' clubs. So I did play yeah, the United Boys' Boy. Club. It's a fantastic boys' club, um, and uh, they had teams all the way for, They didn't go as young as they go now. I've noticed that it was really kind of under 14s was the kind of first under 13s, 14s, then all the way up. But I was actually playing with Comanek under 14s uh, for a for a year. And then uh, when it was time after that season to move up, Kelly never had an under-15s or 16s. It was straight to 18s. So as was a 14-year-old. you're we a bit young for the 18s. So I moved from f- there to Air United, uh, <laughs> uh, Air United Boys Club, which was under-15. And uh, I remember the, the, the boys club... Area and I boys club at that time as I'm sure a lot of boys clubs were in in these days run by fantastic characters Um, and I remember um, the the visit I got at the house from uh, uh, his name was Willie Blair at the time sadly no longer with us but Willie came to uh, my house in a a little white mini van uh, which was a, a works van he had from the a bakery that he worked with, uh, for in here, which is right beside the King George V pitches, which the pitches where they played the games as well. Um, but Wally came and, and 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 it was no talk of football or or how they played the game or anything. He just showed you the strap. He came in and he says, "I want you to come to every night at boys' club." Uh, and it's in my living room, my mum and dad. He says, "Here's the strap you'll be playing on," and he produced this strap, you know, and he says. Look at that fantastic uh, strap, look at the materials and the badges on there, the United uh, badges on there and that type of thing. And he says, and, and that's only the away strap, wait till you see the hem strap, you know. <laughs> a great selling point. <laughs> this, so he's got all you know, this uh, stuff and he says, he did say uh, that, uh, and you'll be, I've got big McAllister from Darville and I've got uh, big McAnally from so Preswick coming in and all the rest That you'll be playing with these boys. So um, so that's how they sold you the game at that time. And even when you were playing in the boys' club, there was no coaching as such, you know, they just put you in positions and uh, you, they kind of gave you a loose kind of framework shout. Out, you run back, you run, all that type of thing. And, uh, but their main, main aim was to get the best boys on the team at that age group in Ayrshire. And they, <coughs> they knew every boy in Ayrshire and every age group and they knew who they thought were the best boys and they would go and try and get them. And that's how, that was the jobs of the the the, the boys club managers and coaches at the time. Um, and then when it, you were old enough, you would move into, as I did in 1977, into the, uh, into the reserve team. Uh, uh, and you would learn, that's where you would start to learn how to play the game. Predominantly from the first-team players or players that have played in the first team who were playing in the reserves, whether they were coming back for injury or loss of form or whatever. <clears throat> well, I was very fortunate to hear. I was a left-back at the time. And here's uh, left-back at the time was a character called Spud Murphy, who was a legendary uh, legendary figure down here at the time in Ayrshire, where United played all his career at Ayr United. And they had other guys, like Big Sanny who was the centre-half, uh, Ricky Fleming, centre-half, that type of thing. So if any of these, uh, like Big Sani in particular, centre-half was injured, I was playing left-back and he was playing, he would tell me where to go. And that's how you learn. They would tell you where to go, when to go, and where to be in the pitch in relation to where the ball was. And you learned the game playing the game in the reserves. And that's how uh, you then became it up and became good enough to progress to the first team or, uh, or you, you, you went elsewhere, played junior or whatever. But um, it was a great upbringing and fantastic that you could learn to f- these guys, you know.
1: Yeah, excellent. And one character that you learned from was... Uh... Ali McLeod, who, after Scotland, unfortunate Scotland sent went back to you for a second spell for a season, um, and a couple of people I've been speaking to recently talk about the um, wacky training um, regimes that he had. Um, was that evident in his time um, every year?
0: Yeah, Ali was, I say, I was a young boy at the time, and he came back, he only was back for, it was uh, 12, 12 or 13 games he came back for before oh, he right, moved okay. to Motherwell. Um and in these 12 or 13 games, I think we won most of them and Drew won, I think. And we lost the very last game. I think it was a Broth we played and we lost that game. But we knew he was leaving at that point. We must all be sad, you know. <laughs> um, we had a lot of young players. We, United had loads of young players from the boys club at that time playing in the first team. Uh, and we had some good experienced players. And Ali was a brilliant motivator. That was his main to, to me, that was his main strength. His motivational powers were fantastic. As you saw when he was a Scotland manager and he filled Hamden just to see the, the Scotland team going around the stadium in the bus, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> who, who else could do that? Um, and, um, but he was a brilliant motivator. And because we had these young boys that would, could run all day and just got them fired up, uh, we went for kind of mid table. Up to joint top of the table in the 12 games, 12, 13 games it was there, and then he left, and we kind of gradually trickled down a bit. But it was a he was a great motivator. But he, he did have some, um, as you said, wacky training, uh, training things that that we did. Where he would always he always took part in the games and that type of thing, uh, and he always had to win, you know. So if it was like if he was in a team that was losing six one, he would say, "Well, the next last next goal's worth seven or something like that," so he could he could be in a winning team if they scored, you know. Um, but he was as well as uh, as well as a brilliant motivator. He did. He he, he had some kind of really unique tactics uh, as well in games that he would produce these things that nobody else should think of you know remember an the old League Cup uh, in the, the, the old format the League Cup where you played a wee league four teams in the wee league at first and the United were in their league and uh, so they came to <clears throat> Somerset to play um, in the first game in the League Cup and they were flying they were a really good team Jim McLean had them and they were doing well in Europe they'd won the league all that type of stuff they, they, they were a really good side. And uh, we had uh, two strikers, two well-known strikers down here. One one of them well-known to you, Big Walker McCall, who played with Aberdeen as well, Big Walker. And a guy called Danny Maston, who was an ex-minor with long blonde hair. And he was a bit like a wild man, you know. Anyway, Danny and Walker were playing up front for us. So in the team talk, uh, Ali decided that, Dundee United with Hegarty and Neri as the centre-halves they were too good for Danny and Walker you know, so in the team talk he said right, he says we're playing against Dundee United today, best centre-half pairing in the country says Hegarty and Neri, far too good for you Danny and Walker far too good for you too, so what we're going to do is, Walker you play wide right and Danny you play wide left so no play against Hegarty and Neri right and the two Danny and Walker oh, all, right, all right, okay, we'll do that. And uh, and Ali says, so when uh, when when there's nobody playing against them, uh, Hegarty and Mary, he asked Danny, he asked Danny and Walker, he says, What do you think they'll do? And Big Danny and Walker kinda of scratching their heads as Well, oh, I don't know, boss. And Ali says, Exactly. And if you don't know, how are they gonna know? <laughs> so so that was just that was just. Philosophy, you know, uh, they're too good for you, so just don't bother playing against them. Then they'll know what to do, you know. And in effect, uh, it worked pretty well because we drew the game one each, and uh, we did well against them. So, uh, but he was always producing all these kind of daft things, which were uh, a sign that he did think quite deeply about the game, you know.
1: You mentioned that you started off at left back. At what point did you then move into um, midfield and was that the position that you always wanted to play?
0: Well, I was left sided, so I actually started when I was a young boy in left wing and moved back back the way to the easier position, which is left back. Um, so I started off at Aerie left back and then through the season, when uh, after Ali, Willie McLean came and he became the manager. It was him that moved me to play left midfield. Um, so it was at that point that I played. I started playing uh, left midfield, probably 78, 79. That point. So, uh, and I did. To be fair, I did enjoy playing midfield more because you were more involved in the game and you get forward a lot more. Um, there was a lot more running involved, which. I didn't particularly particular mind. I was pretty fat, so I could kind of. Well, I wasn't the fastest in the world. I could I could run up and down the park, uh, uh, no problem. So, so I did. I did quite enjoy playing uh, left midfield. But um, I did play when there was injuries. If I was at Dundee uh, or Aberdeen, or latterly, I did play at left back now and again. And I kind of realised it was quite a cushy numbers playing there, you know. So. I think fullbacks pretty a pretty easy area to play in the park, to be honest. No know that I'm wanting to instill the wrath of any fullbacks going about It's a pretty easy position compared to midfield or up front, you know. <laughs>
1: yeah, fair, fair enough. I mean, I think the role of left back is almost changing uh, these days. So, um, but. From, I mean, did you? How much did you enjoy your time, uh, Mayor? Because I, I obviously see that you worked really with well with Clan George Caldwell. Although the team itself didn't really threaten a promotion place, um, how much did you enjoy your learning cover at United?
0: Yeah, I enjoyed particularly the the early stages. Um, after a wee while, I was playing in the the Scotland Under eighteen team with Andy Roxburgh, and Craig Brown, and then after that, the Under twenty ones with uh, Stevie Nicholl who was I was actually playing Stevie was right back and I was left back come left midfield but Stevie uh, Stevie played right back in one of the games for the Scotland Under 21s I think it was at Easter Road and I played left back and here was a small part time club and to have two players playing <clears throat> in the Scotland representing the and Scott, the Scottish Under 21 team as a part-time club was was uh, quite a, an achievement for for the club. Um, but at that point, <clears throat> I was aware that there was um, there was interest for full-time clubs looking at me. Um, but it was a time before there was agents and that type of thing. And you you didn't really know what was going on. The managers decided who was moving where and that type of thing. So it was it was uh, only laterally, uh, when I was away from here, United, that, uh, when I began to get some contacts in the game and coaches and managers and that type of thing I was getting a bit older, would tell me that they'd made an offer for me when I was here but it was not back and that type of thing. In fact, when I was at Dundee, uh, Billy McNeil was the Manchester City manager and he brought Man City up to Dundee one pre-season to play in a pre-season game. Uh, sorry, a uh, a pre-season game, but it was a testimonial game for Bobby mm-hmm. at Dundee, and after the game and the tea room, Billy McNeil said to me, he "said I, he says, um see you get moved to Dundee. He says I, said, I tried to buy you when I was at Celtic, uh, but uh, wee Billy, Willie, Willie McLean was wanting too much money for you know, three hundred thousand or something. I think they offered a the hundred thousand. Um, but that you did the type of things you didn't hear about that in those days, you know. And uh, it's something that." When I began to hear that, I kind of put it in kind of perspective. I said, "Well, there's, there was me, but it could have been anybody—say, a 19-year-old boy playing part-time, 40 quid a week, um, with a team like, a club like Sale taker, whoever it might have been, coming in for them and offering them to, them to buy them." Which is a life-changing moment for a youngster, you know, to go to a big club like that. Yeah. Then. A manager has the power, without the young lad knowing it, to affect his career. I could have stayed part-time at United all my career for all the manager at that time knew. And knocking back that opportunity for a young lad to go on and have a much better opportunity, you know. And I I, I remembered that and I thought if I ever became involved in coaching or management, I would never do that. I would always be in the side of the youngster moving to better things. And uh, I did get the opportunity to 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 do that when I was the manager at Air United for a short time when Craig Conway when Inverness were interested, Craig Conway, a young player who had who had been at Air United for three or four years and uh, got an opportunity to go to, it was actually Dundee United because we, Erie United played, we played Inverness and Craig Conway did very well and Craig Brewster was the manager of Inverness. Brewster then moved to be the manager of Dundee United yeah. and it was at that point Brewster inquired about Craig Conway and although it was a, a tribunal type thing, uh, we facilitated the way for him to to go and, and, and have a great career and he, he, he moved from there down to Cardiff, I think, was the place he moved in England. Or Wales, is it
1: was I think it was, was, kind of thing thing? was Cardiff and, and I had a spell Blackburn as well. Blackburn and that
0: type of thing. So but again if we'd said no nah, nah, to Craig Brewster no no chance he's staying here then he could still be in United just now, you know?
1: Yeah, it could have been I think obviously um, the Bosman rule and had an effect and then I think if anything it's gone too much the other way I think um, as, a, as a fan there needs to be a, um, an, an understanding that um if a player wants wants to go to a bigger club, that opportunity's got to be there if, as long as the club get the right kind of deal from, like yeah. I know Johnny that's Hayes signed right. an extended contract so Aberdeen got the money they got from Celtic at that point. Um, so that's just one example. I think James McFadden made, signed a contract so <laughs> that Motherwell got money for him, that type of thing. So um, it doesn't happen I think enough. That, I
0: think that's a bit of a different uh, level because... Johnny Hayes playing at Aberdeen's a good club and you can have a nice, good career at Aberdeen and that type of thing, although he'll make a lot more money at Celtic, he's still making good money at Aberdeen, but when mm-hmm. you're a part-time player earning 20 quid or 40 yeah. quid a week, it's a bit of a different level, you know, moving yeah. to full-time, so it's uh, that was kind of my point.
1: <laughs> definitely definitely. But you you did manage to get your move. Um you got went to Dundee under Archie Knox, who decided at that point he wanted to be his own man at, at, at Dundee. Um pretty eventful um, couple of years and Archie Knox, that that's a character that it uh, would have been tough for you. Um very real would have motivated you.
0: <laughs> yeah, um uh, when I moved to Dundee, uh, that was my first taste of full-time football. So the first thing we, we did was, uh, well, I was getting married that summer anyway. So we got married and uh, went on honeymoon to Dundee <laughs> to, to look at the digs I was going to, or to look for houses, that's what it was. And then to organise the digs that I was going to stay in. Uh, because we moved a couple of weeks later uh, after our wedding, so we never had time to go on honeymoon. So straight to Dundee and... Um, into pre-season training uh, and it was it was something else you know very hard very tough it was just the same as I latterly learned when I went to Aberdeen it was just the same as Aberdeen do because obviously Archie had been at Aberdeen for a while so it was just the same tra- pre-season training routine as they and it very hard but Archie you say very hard taskmaster Jockey Scott was the coach, first team coach and, and Drew Jarvis, reserve team coach. Two great characters in their own right. So, again, I felt very lucky through my career and the moves I had made and the people that I worked under um, and the clubs that I went to because they were always progressive clubs at that time that I moved there. Mm-hmm. Um, none of them were really just want to fight relegation. They were want to... In a B, try and be in the top half You know, it's a small club as it was a big club in the old days but uh, in relative terms now Dundee's one of the smaller clubs uh, and there Archie, Archie's ambition was to be in the top half of the league at that time you could qualify for Europe if you were 5th or 6th in the league I think mm-hmm. so that was Archie's aim to, to, to be there so we were always chasing something and jockey Archie was a great motivator, Jockey Scott was a brilliant coach, probably the best coach that I've ever worked under, and Drew Jarvie, again, motivation and a lot of desire to do well. So it was a great environment as well um, to work under, and again, there had been a few experienced players there that had been at Dundee for a few years, Bobby Glennie and Albert Kidd, had been there for a few years too, that knew the ropes. And he brought in, Archie brought in the same year as I went, John McCormick, who's another interesting character. character yeah, uh,
1: like
0: John Brown that went on to Rangers, um, uh, and Stuart Rafferty. So it's kind of half a team got brought in at that stage. And uh, it was really enjoyable. We tried to play attractive football, um, and we had a great start to the season playing-wise, although results didn't quite fall into place because I think we went three four, or three, four games, five games maybe without winning, maybe just a draw. But we played really well. We went to Aberdeen. I think we'd lost either 2-1 or 3-2 at the Tawdry in the first game of the season and played really well. I mean, the game could have went either way. Um, and then similarly, the other games, we'd lost with the odd goal, and then our first win, ironically enough, came at Tanadice when we went across the street and beat the United 4-3 in a fantastic game. So, immediately uh, really, we kind of kicked on from there. And although we're never going to be at the top of the league, uh, you know, we were capable of holding our own against most teams. And Archie had been instilling in the players. Uh, it's not good enough just to accept losing to Rangers or Celtic, so. you've got to try and compete, you know, so yeah. it was, uh, again, another, moving up another level in your kind of your career.
1: Yeah, definitely, and you mentioned, obviously, uh, the Dundee derby win at Tandes. Um there was a game later in the season where um, you became a, a Dundee hero just by scoring a winning goal, um, and you probably didn't need to buy a pint in Dundee that night um, just what's that What's that feeling like scoring in a derby like that
0: well it's um, it's, it's great I think that's the only derby I scored in I played in a lot of Ayrshire derbies I don't think I ever scored in one of them But uh, you did well, I was, did I oh sorry I did, nah, I, I, did. I scored <laughs> in a cup game man, yeah I'll come <laughs> back to that later <laughs> no so uh, yeah no it's great as you say it was. I think it was the last game of the season and we won one nothing. Um, and any game, any Dundee derby uh, is important to the fans, important to the players. So um, uh, again, Dundee United, Dundee D- United had a fantastic team at the time, at the top of their game uh, with Jim McLean as the manager there, and uh, never an easy, never an easy game to get a result, and never mind a win. So to get two, two wins. Uh, and the season was fantastic yeah, the
1: that, scoring a goal
0: would you say is, is
1: something extra special here. yeah without doubt I mean, you mentioned that you were looking to get in the top half the league and top half league would have meant European football you missed out on 5th place by 1 point in 84-85 the next season um, I was reading this up you missed out 85-86 by 1 goal rangers ironically um had you got another goal against hearts that day in the 2-0 game you might have um, finished above them but uh no just i mean that just shows how competitive um, the league was at that point that you know that you were um running so close to european football
0: absolutely yeah i mean rangers uh, as you say we went into the last game of the season with a hope that we could leapfrog rangers if they had lost or uh, Drawing or whatever it was but um, and I think that was for 5th place so you can see imagine Rangers finishing 5th now you know or Celtic okay. it's just unthinkable um, but in those days then the monetary, the difference where the money wasn't so great so you, you know there was a better chance for the provincial teams to have a bit of success more than nowadays where the financial gulf was so great but uh, no, but that uh, in that last game in the season, in particular against Hearts, where Hearts had had a great season, and they just needed to draw
1: mm-hmm.
0: at uh, Dens to win the league. Then, uh, I think, funnily enough, we had a good we had a good record against uh, Hearts in the two years I was at Dens. I think uh, Dundee, we had a good record against Hearts at Dens, mm-hmm. but not at Tannadice. No, no, Tandine. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't really a surprise that we won that game because we did have a good record against them. Um, but uh, I, and, and, and that was what was in our mind, was winning this game and then hopefully Rangers slipping up and we get into Europe. That was all that was in our mind. I mean, obviously, in the heart supporters' mind and in all of Celtic supporters and most of the other supporters and the Sc- and Scottish football supporters were looking at if Hearts could win the league or no but just, it just barely crossed our mind that we were just focused on winning the game to try and get into Europe and mm-hmm. in hindsight looking back as you do ever everything you can see the kind of devastation that it caused with the Hearts supporters and uh, and how uh, how hard it must have been on that day and I went, lived through a similar thing Latterly 1990 Aberdeen, but it was. Uh, I think uh, one of the other things that always sticks in my mind is that uh, about that Hearts game. Celtic had to win by a few goals, I think.
1: Yeah, they
0: went five uh, now. There was a so watching the St. Mirren Celtic game at night and seeing Big Jimmy Stewart's good pal of mine, Big Jimmy Stewart the goalie. You know, once you finished, once I finished playing with play a... Kind of, friendly games with our pals in Ayrshire and Big Jimmy was in goals a lot of the time you know used to get a bit of stick flying about but uh, but that was one of them it uh, was seeing Big Jimmy throwing two or three of the goals in you know like when he was in goals so we always well we never let him forget that
1: <laughs> No I bet no I mean it, it must have been a surreal thing he's also heart so disappointed missing out on the title um, and you guys miss out in European football by a goal, um, must be a strange atmosphere but yeah, you're hugely popular um, with one side of Glasgow because of um, what happened that day
0: Absolutely and um, the fun enough the following season their first game Dundee's first game was at uh, Parkhead and in the Celtic programme where the, you normally have a bit couple of pages or two or three pages, it's headed up and it's entitled Today's Visitors or Dundee FC or something like that. What the editor of the programme had headed up, the Dundee section of the programme that day, was Albert Kidd and friends, (laughs) because obviously Albert had scored the two goals and, and Albert was now a Celtic hero, you know, and there was a Celtic uh, supporters club named uh, after Albert and that type of yeah. thing. But carrying on for that, uh, in the centenary, not that many years ago, my memory's terrible, you know better than me, uh, 86 or so 2016, was it? 2016, the, the 30, how many years is that? 30 years? i
1: will be 30 years since uh, uh, I worked there, yeah.
0: So Celtic had a a dinner at Parkhead for the league-winning team, and yeah. they gave Albert two tables at the at the dinner, and he was allowed to bring along guests and ex and D players that played that day as well. So Albert, who stays in Australia now, he came back specially for them. I mean, Albert's a multi-millionaire now, a big uh, construction business, and his... Uh, all he does is go on world cruises him in the missus now. So, nice. Uh, he just stopped in at Parkhead for the day to go to this dinner. Uh, anyway, we went and we're sitting at these two tables are filled with X and D players. Uh, but Albert, we all get told to go in and sit down, so we're all sitting down. But Albert's not there. He's been kept outside for some reason. So the compare that, the mc that night starts announcing the celtic team one by one and they come in that played in that uh, won the league so they were all getting a cheer and blah blah blah, blah. Uh, and so they were all seated and then said well, one final special guest uh albert Kidd, uh, scored the two goals <laughs> He's the big builder and albert scored the two on the day that the great day albert Kidd scored the two goals this man himself here today, <laughs> the one and only Albert and Albert walked in and I'm no kidney, John, the place erupted. The Celtic <laughs> players never even got a look in with the size of this cheer. You know, this cheer was through the roof, and we uh, Albert, we uh, we Albert strode across waving the other day. You know, as he, as he walked and sat down at the table, <laughs> it, was, it was hilarious.
1: He's probably made a fortune out of those two goals, um, let alone his construction business. So, um
0: oh, have well that Yeah, I think Celtic have included him in quite a lot of things.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and you nearly <laughs> got a wee trip to, to Mexico because I see you got your first Scotland cap that year against uh, Holland. How close were you really to um, getting to the World Cup? <clears throat> uh,
0: well, the, the, that was the final warm-up game before they went and the squad was already picked. Alec Ferguson... Uh, uh, there was a few call-offs as are normally are we, uh, Scottish, Scotland friendly so on the Saturday the last game of the season we played, uh, played at Parkhead fun enough for Dundee, and the bus just arrived back at Denz that day Archie called me up to the front of the bus as we were getting off he just held me back and he says look uh, you've been called up into the Scotland squad there's been a couple of call-offs and you've called up you need to go to wherever it was, tomorrow. Holland, Korea. I think. Aye. So, some hotel in Glasgow you need to go to tomorrow. Uh, so, I went there. So, as I arrived, I uh, spoke to Alec Ferguson and he said, look, the uh, the, the squad for the World Cup has already been picked. He said, but this is a great opportunity for you to, you know, for f- after the World Cup if, to be involved in Scottish setup." So, anyway, I didn't... He, I didn't even know whether I'd be think I would be playing, but it was actually started the game. I played played quite well, uh, but there was we could have won the game because one of the good things I did in the game, I never let let this guy forget this, was in the first half was I played the ball through, put Ali McCoist through on goals, straight through on he was, with the only keeper he m- to beat, and he missed it. And I've said, see, if you'd scored that, I might have went to the World and he never went to the World Cup either. Right. So if you scored that, we might have went to the World Cup <laughs> World Cup. He says, but fair sphere, you always miss your fair share, but you get your fair share as well, you know. That was his debut as well,
1: wasn't it? That was, his debut, wasn't it? That was his debut too, yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely,
1: God, what well, mate, I mean, to, I mean, to be fair, there was a lot of really good midfield players and strikers at that point. So, I mean, I think it shows how well you've done to even be considered as a backup to those players. It must have been um, something itself. So, you must have been doing something right in your career. And then, you get a move um, to Aberdeen. Um, Archie obviously goes up with you, because he's um, gone back as um, co-manager. So, you got a short time with Sir Alex. Um, you know, just to sum up what um, what it was like playing under him, and how often were you on the end of the so-called dry treatment?
0: <clears throat> well, he was he was only there a couple of months before he left. Uh, I'm yeah. not sure exactly sure how many weeks, but I think uh, I think the right was in the wall. Before I can understand, I think he'd turned down a couple of the clubs. One of them being Aston Villa down in England. It um, is mind set on Manchester United, I think. Uh, that was the story as it went in that time, and sure enough, away he went. But when I was in Aberdeen, although he was still pretty fiery, I think he had kind of, he had kind of mellowed a bit. He had kind of settled down a wee bit at Aberdeen because I think he knew where he was, where he was going, um, and that kind of took the edge off him a wee bit. Although he was still very fiery and that type of thing, um, but as a new player. Uh, or whether it was because it was a new player, or whether it was because he had mellowed mellowed—I'm not too sure—but I didn't—I didn't experience uh, personally the, the hairdryer. Although I saw it quite a few t- times with the other players, but um, uh, so. But he's uh, when he left, it was like a death in the family in Aberdeen. You know, although I had only just arrived in Aberdeen, I could still sense the the big kind of hole that he'd left when he went, it was just, it was just a, a depression had Aberdeen been in the club and all the rest of it, and uh, I don't know who, it was just who, who, who's going to come in now and, and pick up where he's left off, just an impossible task, you know, um, so I don't think it mattered who came in, I think it would always be an impossible task, but um, the hardest job, I think, was to pick up all the people that had been there for a while, the backroom staff and that type of thing. Teddy Scott, who'd been there for years and years and served Fergie well and thought the world of Fergie um, and the success they'd brought to the club. Um, and they'd be, they had grown used to the success. I think that's the thing. The players, Willie Miller and Alec McLeish and Jim Leighton, that wee triangle there, were just used to success, just used to winning, um, and that coincided with uh, Graham Souness also coming to Rangers, David Murray loosening the purse strings at Rangers and and starting to spend big and pay big wages and attract top, and it also coincided with the ban of the English clubs in Europe, there was quite a lot of things and I came together uh, and and Rangers moved up a level to a different level for every other club in Scotland which made it an unlevel playing field if you like again because whereas Aberdeen and Dundee United uh, with Jim McLean's uh, low basic and high appearance money and high bonuses type things and 25 year contracts and that type <laughs> of thing, the, the United were very competitive, Aberdeen were very competitive, Celtic yeah. were competitive, Rangers were competitive, but they were all on, there wasn't a, although Rangers-Celtic paid a bit more, there wasn't that much, you know, it yeah. wasn't a, the, the the big yawning gulf it is now, so yeah. you could be competitive in those days, but Rangers, that was when they just put their foot in the, the pedal and just started moving away financially for everybody else. And they brought up all the English internationals and then a, an array of foreign internationals, that type of thing, over the, the coming years. So Rangers became the main player. And I think in my time at Aberdeen, I think, with the eight years I was there, I think we were runners-up five times to Rangers in the league. Um, that might, might not be quite accurate, but I think it was, um so, we did try and be as competitive as we could be against them, but as they kept adding players and adding players, then uh, it's get harder and harder, and I think it became a bit of a frustration for particularly Willie and and Alec, you know, who'd been used to, to beating them more than not. But uh, we did have a share of success in the Cups, although, as I mentioned earlier, we had a a chance to win the league, which we unfortunately didn't take.
1: Yeah, um, I'll I'll come on to that. In fact, I'll just come on that now, and then I'll cover um, some of that stuff. I mean that that league decider um, in 1981, I spoke. Do you know I spoke to David Robertson about this? I spoke to um, Brian Irvine as well. Um, the way David Robertson described it was Motherwell's um, last minute goal, um, which put Aberdeen top of the league, almost put Aberdeen in a difficult position. Because before Motherwell made it 3-0 that day, um, Aberdeen would have had to go gone to and 1, whereas now they were only going to need a point, and it almost like, changed the mentality. And Do you think that had um, an effect on the day, or was it just a case of um, things didn't go away, like Hansel has um, in particular, that's a really good chance for Haitley makes it 1-0? Um, do you just think it was just not meant to be?
0: Well, I think uh, on the day, I think... Uh, The players, we had been in a good run, as you say, and I think the players are confident in going to Ibrox and and winning the game regardless. I mean, I I don't really know how you play for a draw other than defending and trying to get a a 0 0 draw, but it just wasn't in our kind of style to to play that way. but the, the kind of overriding memories for me or the, the occasion ties in with what happened to Alex Smith the next season and also with Willie, Willie Miller becoming the manager. Everything kind of ties in uh, to, back to that game because we had played we had played, uh, the kind of second half of the season, if you like, almost with the same team and the same players, same formation, full 3 3 the same players and we had went on a good run as you said towards the end of the season I think it was 12 games or something like that 11-12 games Um, and when we went to Ibrox uh, Alex Smith as he always did uh, we met up in our hotel before we went to Ibrox to play the game and he named the team and they had the team had been the same for the run we were on uh, we had one injury where Theo Snelders was injured uh, and uh, Michael Watt had to play, so that was fair enough. Um, but Alex Smith changed the formation and, he, and, he, and the personnel as well. I think he left Big Bill and Bander Ark on the bench and he brought Peter van de Ven into midfield. He played 4-4-2 instead of 4-4-4-3-3. And when he, when he mentioned that in the team talk before, the team meeting before we went to the, the stadium. He emphasises I'm going to change things not because uh, not because not in a negative way, that's what he says. It's not it's not in a negative way. It's because I think this is the best way we can win the game. That's how he kind of sold it to us. Um, and he said the team and. Told us we were changing to 4-4-2 and that type of thing, um, which you know was was a wee bit surprising. But I mean, at the end of the day, we're still confident we could go and win the game. Although in hindsight, you're looking back and you're thinking, and, and as everybody does, they say, why would why would Alex Smith do that, um, given the run he was on and the way the team was playing? Um, it's a big decision to make. And in a way, it's, it's a hard decision for him to make. It's an easy decision for him to keep the team the same because nobody will bat an eyelid then. But to change the team, and in his view, because he thought that was the best way of winning the game. He was quite a deep thinker about football, Alex Smith. He thought this was the best way to win the game. And he made that decision knowing that if it didn't work out, or he must have, he must have known, I'm assuming anybody would know, making a decision like that. If it didn't work out, then all the fingers will be pointing at him, rightly or wrongly, for doing what he did. And as it turned out, as you say, I think it was the type of game where we, the kind of first goal was going to be important, you know, and and we did have it, nothing each, a couple of chances. Hans, as you say, master chance ninety nine times out of hundred he would put it away. Peter van de Ven with <laughs> coincidence had a really good chance yeah. as well. Uh, just a kind of free shot from a running about the penalty spot and he kinda of scuffed it. Um, before Mark Haley scored with what was what, what, what was a fantastic I mean I've looked at it again. It was an incredible header he scored for because it was a big loop in cross. And he out-jumped by which isn't an easy thing to do in the first t- instance. And managed to get incredible power on his header. It was, a, it was quite an incredible goal. Um, but uh, unfortunately for us, we couldn't get back into the game. And then rolling over into the next season, um, Alex Smith uh, lost his job. Not that too far into the season, I think. I'm not sure exactly how It was in February. It. Yeah. February. So, and Willie, who obviously was fans' choice to be manager, he was a god up there and he had retired from playing. He was on the coaching staff. And there was this finger pointing at Alex Smith. Uh, we had no start to the season too, too well, drawn a lot of games. And I think there was just this overwhelming Kind of push to get Alex Smith out and get Willie Miller in uh, I think for for Willie's sake I think it was probably too early for Willie to become the manager at Aberdeen um, and you know the rest kind of history but I, think that, I don't think we can underplay the we can underplay the point that Alex Smith's decision played and him losing his job, the decision at the Iberts game and his, him losing his job are kind of linked, you know.
1: Yeah, I think, I think
0: there's... That's only, that's only my opinion, John, you know, but I
1: don't know No, No, of did. course, I mean, um, you know, I, I think he, he was um, quite harshly treated by a like lot Aberdeen fans, but I think what also didn't help um, Alex was that he lost Jockey Scott, who went to be his own manager in Firmland. um You know, just... Did you did you sense a, a big change um, after Jockey left?
0: Well, Jockey, the, the 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 setup they had there. Alex Smith was the the manager. Uh, it was co-manager roles, but Alex Smith's role was the kind of yeah. would come in and do the team talk and that type of thing. And him and Jockey and Drew would, would sit down and they would pick the team together and all the rest of it. But I think Alex Smith had the final say. But Jockey did all the training, did all the uh, the coaching and the tactical side of things, with Alec obviously an input to the tactics Um, I think Alec kind of sat above the day-to-day running of the football side of things that Jockey took and I think Jockey maybe felt that he should be getting more credit for what he's doing I I don't know what the ins and outs it were but um, there might have been some Jockey wasn't happy about something so when he left, yeah, I think that left a big hole because, as I said, Jockey was a fantastic coach. With the guys like uh, Hans Hillhouse, uh, Charlie Nicholas, midfield players Jim Bett and Paul Mason and guys that liked to get forward. Jo- that was Jockey's speciality, was the front third of the park for the halfway line forward all the link play or the forward play. That was Jockey's, he was brilliant at it and uh, I think we with a good spell there where we had Players that could link up well with each other, and I think they they benefited a lot for Jockey's coaching. And when he left, obviously that uh, left a wee hole there. Who was going to come in and and pick up that mantle and keep that going? You know, so it was unsettling as well. So it was unsettled times, um, and with the unrest on the terraces as well, then uh, that, that resulted in Alex Smith losing his job. You know.
1: Yeah, It's a shame that um, his reputation was almost done after that game because people forget that um, since Salas, um, Salas Ferguson, he has the most successful Aberdeen manager. As you said, we finished us up quite a few times. Um, there was the We we did eventually get a League Cup final win over Rangers after losing the previous two. Um, We won the Skull Cup. Um, You obviously set up one of the goals that day. And then we go and win the Scottish Cup. The the Cup double in the same season um, against both halves of the offer. Apart from winning the league, it doesn't get much better than that as an Aberdeen fan.
0: Yeah, well, that's always been the, the way to success for the provincial clubs especially now since uh, Celtic and Rangers financially are in a different league for everybody else. But even back in those days, the, the Cups were... Scottish Cup in particular was was a, a really important tournament for everybody. Mm-hmm. And even the League Club was an important tournament in those days. Uh, the, the League Cup was an important tournament as well. It was a great thing as a player to win the League Cup in those days. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was a great feeling to... to to have won both cups in the season and I think it was the following season we could have won the league. I mean what a wee period that would have been if we had if we had mm-hmm. just managed to do that would have been a fantastic little period. And I mean against against our Rangers squad in the club that Rangers were at the time who were so far away financially for Aberdeen it would have been probably been if we had won the league that day one of the most one of the best achievements of any Scottish club, you know, to be to to, to win the league at that point, and that is another day. Every player in that team, maybe apart for David Roberts <laughs> he said, because he went to Rangers the next uh, season. It's without doubt their biggest disappointment in their whole career that they never won the league that day. You know, without doubt by miles their biggest disappointment, um, because it would have been such an enormous achievement given the financial gulf between the two clubs. yeah, um, But he was, it, it would have been the same as Aberdeen winning the league now Aye. Okay, against yeah. Celtic Rangers. So that gives you an idea of how big an achievement it would have been. But the Cups were fantastic. And uh, the Scottish Cup in particular, the League Cup, that was the first medal I won because, as you said, we'd lost the two previous League Cup finals in the previous two years, two Rangers um, both good games which is unusual for Cup finals sometimes, maybe not the best of games but both of these games were good games unfortunately we had uh, run out on the losing side but uh, on the third game um, when uh, we, we, we knew we just had to win that game because uh, if you'd lost three in a row, it'd have been a disaster, you know. Uh, and I remember Big Alec McLeish before we went out, uh, saying we're all lined up just to go out to the dressing room, and he turned round and said to everybody, "All the players, he's right. If we don't win, if we don't win this one, don't bother coming back in." So, uh, so everybody knew what was at stake, and. Uh, Fortunately, this time it went in our favour because the games could go either way. Football's a a finely balanced thing and really games can go either way. And it's it's unfair in my old age now sitting here, I think, to look back and and, and judge teams and say, that team lost, so that means they've failed and that team won, so that means they've succeeded. In black and white, they have... But I think it's bigger than that. And, and to say that and we did fail the year before we won that cup final, but we succeeded in that cup final. But we could have won either or lost either. So the small margins, you know.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the scores um, tell it all. And, um, eight and nine, That 8 that um, score cup final was um, the first when I became an Aberdeen fan. We um, then won the Scottish Cup. Obviously that season, so um, haven't won it since. So thanks for setting me up for a fall. And um, the uh, there was a novelty of the um, in those days of the penalty show. You you score your penalty, but how much? Four um, three Celtic, because Brian Grant had also missed. His, how nervous were you when Charles Nicholas stepped up? Because he was obviously lined up to go to Celtic. Had he missed, Celtic going to win the cup and get to Europe, um, but he then shows the ultimate. act of professionalism in class by sticking that in the the top corner?
0: Well, at the time I I never had any, obviously that's a talking point now because of the situation he was in, but at the time I never had any doubt that uh, Charlie would score. Um, He he was a phenomenal striker and a great finisher Um, and although his links with Celtic, he was a Tremendous player for Aberdeen. Um, he was a great professional as well. He always wanted to do his best. He was a good trainer and that type of thing. Um, and, and loved succeeding, loved success. So I had no doubt that uh, he would score. Uh, in fact, it's probably one of the best penalties that anybody took in the yep. thing, top corner. Mm-hmm. Um, I was more worried about everybody else or the other people rather than Charlie. You know? Like
1: Graham Rott Watson, for example.
0: I like Graham Watson, uh, who had only played one or two games, I think, at that point for the first team coming on as a sub, but I think he'd played the week before at Parkhead because there was a lot of the regular players were rested and he played a lot of the younger boys at Parkhead and they won 3-1, I think they won. three-one. Yeah, C1, yeah.
1: Um,
0: so, when Graham Watson was uh, at the tail end. Of the, 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 everybody kept scoring. and You know, David Robertson came up to take one. I'm worried about him, you know. I mean, I was worried about me as well, more than anybody. but Worried about Big Bri, worried about everybody. Stuart McKimmy, who couldn't hit a coo nurse with a banjo, you know. And, and he, even he, I think he half kicked the ground, which helped, and it put the ball the opposite way he meant to put it. But... Uh, Paki Bonner dived the other way for the divot and the ball went the other way. But, uh, now, coming to the end, there's an actual story I've told a lot up in Aberdeen uh, because as it was coming to the last few players and the, the, everybody kept scoring, came down to a Celtic player was taking a penalty uh, at the time, just placing the ball. And I'm standing beside Big Brian and Graham Watson as you can imagine, Graham Watson's looking at this and thinking, I might need to take a penalty here. And he's as white as a sheet, he's a ginger hair anyway, so his face is as white as a ghost. And um, that blank stare in his eyes as if I might need to go up here and take a penalty. You know. So there's only him and big Brian Irvine left. And the Celtic guy's lining up to take his penalty. He's taking his run up to take the penalty. And Brian Irvine is saying to Graham Watson, Winker, that's what Graham was called, Winker, Winker Watson. He says, Winker, have you ever taken a penalty before? And Graham Watson kind of said in a trembly voice, Well, just at the training, and just at that, the Celtic player scores a goal, and all the Celtic fans where we are standing close to erupt and cheer and all the rest of it, and the Celtic players given all oh, the fuss, something of like that type of thing, and. Uh, Brian turns back to Graham Watson and says, and "I'm thinking, Brian, uh, Big Brian's Irvin's going to take the next penalty." He turns back to Graham Watson and says, "Okay then, just imagine you're at the training on you go, and he sends us wee boy, trim, <laughs> quivering and trembling, up to take a penalty to keep us in the cup final instead of going and taking it yourself. You know, a guy that's played." For four or five seasons and I'm going, Brian, what the hell are you? he says, oh, he says he's got a better chance of scoring than me you know, so fortunately Graham scored and then Big Theo saves yeah. Anton Rogan's penalty right at the post it wasn't a bad penalty, it was a good penalty but it was a great save Yeah. and um, Big Brian goes up to take the the, the, the penalty after him to, to win the cup now and kind of sclaps this ball into the net and Boner as he did thankfully for most of the penalties dived the wrong way and uh, Big Brian's a hero you know <laughs> he's, he's milking all the hero and, Nick's, and at that point uh, Big Brian was known as a kind of religious person and mm-hmm. that type of thing so as they obviously would do, the press have obviously kind of lined them up a wee bit. With that, did you did you think God was helping you, know that type of thing? And maybe big Brian said, "Oh well, yeah, my faith and this that." And the next thing, so the, the headlines the next day: "God helps me win the cup you know, and <laughs> all this type of thing," you know. But what they didn't know is he'd sent the trembling wee boy up to take the penalty before he would take it, you know. <laughs>
1: I think what was more impressive, at the fact that when watching Test is that I remember the Celtic fans at that point went in a huge noise to try and put them off, and um, and all the rest. Of it. So I thought, good on you for um, sticking that in, and then feel before that Norgren because he's doing you know the the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the hands up to Aberdeen fans to say get. Um, start put the, your turn now to put the pressure on and it worked, um, but as you say, Theo was a great save, um, and yeah, Brian was my favourite player at the time, so I was glad that he scored, um, but just, the, I mean, you said some great characters in the team at that time, I mean, obviously, uh, um, Alec McLeish, uh, Brian Irvin, um, yourself, um, you know, did you have a, a great night out that night after the cup final one?
0: Um No, we went to the team hotel, the, and Struthers' Anstruther, I Anstruther. I've got a terrible memory. We went to a, a hotel in Anstruther and all the wives and the director. Everybody was there for the club. And it was just a kind of dinner and a, I think, a wee kind of dance as well, dinner dance type thing like that. And then the following day, so it was pretty laid back. A couple of guys had a, quite a wee bit to drink and all that. About the direct, everybody was there. So you could let your hair down, so, but it wasn't too anything special you know, and nothing too wild and then the following day we went back up and jumped on the open top bus uh, parked up waiting on us to go into Aberdeen and went through the streets to do that, that type of thing which was uh, which was great, which was absolutely brilliant it's a good thing being a one uh, club city is that you can do that you know you can drive right down the Union Street and the open top bus and everybody's cheering, it was great, fantastic day, so the, probably that was better than the the night, you know mm-hmm. after the cup final
1: Yeah, excellent, I mean that must be something to be able to be in an open top bus and see all the red and white decks out to, to cheer you on, to say well done for winning the cup, I mean that's just um, that's just amazing as we say the following season didn't quite go to plan you had started the next season pretty well I've mentioned this to you a, a couple of times that after that um, Scotland versus um, SFL select game that I met you at which is not a good game I must say you then score against Hibs you score against Celtic and you get your fourth and final cap for Scotland finally a winning game for Scotland because I think your previous games you would drawn a couple and lost one so what do you remember about that win over Romania?
0: I remember one thing in particular but see, before I just go into that could I just tell you, but there was a thing in the open top bus that just came to my mind there about <coughs> Aberdeen, because it was a, Aberdeen's a great family club all, all the wives were on the bus with us, you know so the wives are on the bus, they're all up in the top and they're, they're going, going along and uh, as we come in by, we're going up towards Ferry Hill and because we were away overnight my mum was up babysitting for us, we had, we had uh, I just had My oldest daughter at the time, Abby, and she was only like, uh, she was only like two or something like that, and my mother was babysitting. And when the open-top bus was driving up towards Ferry Hill, we we stayed in the wee road just down there, and the crowds were kind of even there, lining the streets up towards the the town centre. And as we're passing by that bit, and everybody's waving at the top of the bus, you could see my mother with her daughter, you know, and I remember Anne, my wife, saying to me, Look at what she's got on, Abby. I can't believe she's got that outfit on her there for the complaining about the, the clothes my mum <laughs> had put on the wing, you know, for the open top busking bag. I'm saying, Well, I'm not really bothered about that. I'm just waving to the fans and everything here, no bothered about what the wain's got on, you know. But that's, a, that's just a woman hang so. Uh, the, uh, the the Romania game was uh, memorable for two things because we, we, we won the game and the other thing was because I played a game directly against the best player I've ever seen live which was, was Georgie Hadji and unfortunately he was playing directly against me so I got a really good view of him <laughs> not that I get that close to him but I got a really good view of him in action and the guy was just Probably at the time one of the top three players in the world. Um, they also had another kind of top player, Lacatus, the yes. winger as well, and and a few other really good players. Uh, Romania, a right, good side at that time. But the but playing against Hadges probably that was uh, that was something to remember, just about how. How these far away these players are for just a normal player like me, you know. This guy was just different class. Um, just seeing things that normal players don't see, I would imagine. Uh, and uh, just a kind of education watching this guy playing, you know. But having said that, it was great to win the game. Um, and uh, I'm not sure what happened after that in terms of the World Cup, but where it went but uh, no that was a great we had we'd drawn a couple of games the first game against Holland that I played and we drew nothing each then Saudi Arabia I think we, we yeah. drew over there lost uh, against England 2-0 the kind of last of the Rouse Cup games wasn't it yeah at Hampden um, so I yeah. to, to, to win that game was fantastic I suppose looking back you no know, playing more games for Scotland would be a big disappointment for me but uh, they always jockey Scott, I always remember speaking to Jockey and Drew Jarvie we were sitting having their lunch at Petodrey one day. And not, not for the first time this, this was brought up, but they would always say you'll when you stop playing football, you'll always think you could have done better. Nobody unless you're Ronaldo or something, probably even he thinks he could do better. But you'll always think you could do better. So make sure you're doing as you're trying as hard as you can, and you're doing as well as you can while you're playing, because you don't want to look back at things where you could have done better. You know. Yeah, definitely. Um,
1: true for everybody. Why, definitely. Um, and as we, you mentioned, you end up playing under Willie Miller, um, for a couple of seasons. Um, first season, second in all competitions. Um, to Pretty good Rangers side, unfortunately. At that point, that was his Rangers side that nearly went to Champions League final, then second again in the Premier League the next year. Before you and a few other experienced players end up leaving. Um, just how different was it playing under Willie Miller, the player, um, as opposed to um, said Willie Miller, the captain, and then going on to play under him as a manager? How different uh, did you feel?
0: Yeah, not that different because Willie, as the captain, and and especially latterly, as he got older and the club had a lot of success. Um, Willie was a kind of on-field manager, you know, so Willie would always be... He would always be, um, he would always be uh, giving out instructions and saying things to players during the game, uh, making sure everybody was doing what they should be doing. So when he, when he, when he became the manager... Um, uh, it wasn't a, such a big transformation I don't think for him as it might have been for uh, other players who maybe didn't take that role on the field as a player. So, um, But it was Willie's first job in management, so it was probably dealing with the older players was harder for Willie, like Jim Bay, like Alec McLean. Players that he'd that were just a year or two younger than him Um, and he had to get them on side, he had his own ideas of how to play the game what he wanted to do Um, so he had to put those ideas in place Um, and uh, I don't think it suited everybody in the team Uh, I don't think Jim Bett in particular fancied it, it was maybe a more direct style than Jim Bett had thought was uh, the way that benefited him um, so but at that t- time like sir, Alex Jim Bette, myself were all mid-30s and I think we all left in the same season uh, more or less Alec went to be the manager at Motherwell, didn't he? And yeah Motherwell. Motherwell. Um, Jim Bet went to Hearts. Think you, left and went to hearts. So, no saying about myself, but losing Alec McLeish and losing Jim Bette, losing those calibre of players uh, is a, a big loss, especially in the dressing room as well, when you're trying to breed a kind of winning mentality because that was something I really noticed when I went to Aberdeen in the dressing room. The mentality in the dressing room specifically Coming for Willie Miller and Alec McLeish and Jim Leighton to an extent was was a real winning winner's mentality, you know. Um, And I remember when we got to the first of the League Cup finals. I think we beat Dundee two nothing at Tannadice in the semi-final. I think I scored a goal actually. Uh, and we came into the dressing room. It was the first cup final. I would be going to, I think that was in 86 or 87.
1: 87.
0: 87. First cup final, I was going to come into the dressing room and uh, and, and that's what Willie was saying. He says, well done, boys. That's another another final to look forward to, you know. It was totally all about getting to finals or winning leagues. That's what the mentality was, you know. So uh, to lose for Willie, to lose out his dressing room, Alec and Jim Bett was a big blow I would imagine for him uh, in terms of the mentality in the dressing room and it was something that he would, I, I don't I don't know who was still there to, to, to pick up that mantle for him but uh, it was certainly the Aberdeen, the Petaudry dressing room was, was a kind of winning mentality dressing room that was really everybody was beaten over the head by these few guys, Willie Miller, Alan McLeish all the time to make sure nobody was slacking, you know.
1: So, I mean, I think that affected the club firm um, the next season, losing guys like yourself and um, I think Lee Richardson was another one that went, um, and guys like that, because Aberdeen then struggled in the following season. You go into Kilmarnock, um, two seasons were. You survived pretty comfortably, seventh in both seasons. Um, you actually beat Aberdeen four times in your first season there, um, just, and you under know Not a, lot of, know that. Not a yeah. lot
0: of people know that.
1: Yeah, I, I remember. Um, unfortunately, but uh, yeah. how much did you enjoy your two years at Comanot?
0: I, I, I really enjoyed my time at Comanot because Comanot was my. I come from Comanot, mm-hmm. and as a young boy, growing up in Comanot, the football club was very important to the town and the people in the town. Kilmarnock, at that time, was a big industrial town, a lot of factories and manufacturing there. And all the guys went to the football on the Saturday. My family, my dad went, my uncles went. Um, and when I was big enough to walk for the house to the stadium, which is in the middle of the town, the stadium, um, when I was big enough to walk with my friends, we didn't get driven anywhere or anything like that, that's all the kids get nowadays, when I was big enough to walk with my wee pals or whatever to the stadium myself that's when I started going when I was about seven or eight uh, and we got a lift over the turnstile as they did in the days um, but it was a real community thing and obviously Kelly had been successful in, 60s we won in the league in 65. Um, so there was a there was a good feeling about Kilmarnock at the time um, and and I was brought up with that uh, and uh, it wasn't unusual for uh, I think that's a big difference nowadays with uh, clubs recruiting young players etc. Because in those days. Kilmarnock just had a never-ending stream, and other clubs as well, a never-ending stream of boys 15, 16-year-old boys outside banging their door, wanting to get signed by Kilmarnock. And there were loads of great young players at the time playing in all different levels of football because there wasn't a lot else to do, and that's what they did. But there was structured football through, whether it be pub leagues, works leagues was very big in those days. So like my father worked in the Saxo and my friend's father worked in Glenfield and Kennedy, the metal workers. So these these had works teams and these they had a league and they played in a league. And it wasn't unusual for Kilmarnock to sign a player from a works team who was playing in the works league and two weeks later he's playing against Rangers or Celtic as a right-back. Oh. So there was a real depth a real depth of football talent in Scotland at the time and that's although there's a lot of reasons why we're, we are where we are with young players now that's probably one of them was it's, the society at the time was geared towards uh, football and guys wanted to play play football or watch football or whatever which is just no there in such numbers now you know and um, and and Kelly and Kelly at the time, one of the disappointments I had was that uh, I, I knew I was going to be leaving Aberdeen because uh, towards the end of the '94 season, because Willie I'd spoken to Willie about it, and he'd, he'd let me know a couple of weeks before the end of the season, and that's fine. Um, and I had been at I would went to a midweek game uh, down in Capello Morton's Park. Colmarnock were playing Morton and Tommy Burns was the manager at Colmarnock at the time uh, and I went down I watched the game because I was down for some other reason and somebody said, do you want to go to the Kelly game at Morton I said, I will go up, so we went up, watched the game ended up in Alan McGraw who was the Morton manager at the time ended up in Alan McGraw's uh, office afterwards where uh, Tommy Burns and Billy Stark who's a team teammate of mine at Aberdeen was the assistant at Colmarnock They were in the office as well after the game. Kelly had won 2-1. I think Tommy Burns actually scored the winner. It was a cup game. Um, And I big Starkey asked me what I was doing after the end of the season. And I did say to him, well, uh, just between you and I, I think I'll be leaving and Tommy, get Tommy Burns over and that type of thing. So uh, he was, Tommy, without saying, because Tommy's no that type, he just tapped me on the shoulder and said, see you see you later type thing and I thought uh, is that what they call tapping you (laughs) when they they actually tapped me quite hard twice (laughs) on the shoulder you know and looked at me and I said see you later as he tapped me and I thought maybe that's where that saying comes you've been tapped you know Uh, anyway as as it transpired uh, Tommy Burns he obviously didn't know he was going to Celtic at that point but he went to be the Celtic manager at the end of that season, uh, and Kelly didn't have a manager. But fortunately, uh, the chairman Bobby, I knew the chairman Bobby Fleeton and a good friend of mine Robert Riley had said to him, "I uh, that I was leaving Aberdeen, so he invited me down for pre-season training." Bobby Williamson, one of the players, took the training until they got a manager in place. But Bobby Fleeton said, uh, "No, no, you stay here. There'll be a contract for you here when the new manager comes in." So. I really enjoyed my time at Colmarnock, I uh, played in a kind of more central midfield role, obviously I was getting on a bit, so I didn't have the the legs to run up and down but uh, uh, I really enjoyed the couple of seasons under Alec Totten who I think Alec Totten's strength as a manager was spotting players and he brought a few good players to the club, he brought uh, Paul Wright who was an ex-teammate of mine at Aberdeen as well. Um, couple of guys, young boy boys from Manchester United, a guy called Colin McKee, who was a, a winger, and Neil Whitworth, who was a centre half, good big centre half. Um and uh, uh Masqueray, Stevie Mascry who was a recent Johnson strike was a really good player Stevie, good goal scorer. And uh I mean had a good season, you know, mid mid table type thing. Uh, playing Decent football, I thought, and on the hallowed turf of uh, Rugby Park, you know, which was a fantastic pitch. Unfortunately, it's like a living room carpet nowadays, but <laughs> it was uh, one of the best pitches in Scotland at the time, and it was a great. Every, oh, oh, I remember as an opposing player going to play at every opposing team. All the players loved going to play at Rugby Park because the pitch was so good, and it's now Astro and Johnny Walker's no longer in Kilmarnock either. All these things have disappeared. The pitches disappeared. Johnny Walker's disappeared. The whisky. All the all the famous things that Kilmarnock could have gone.
1: You know. That's a that's a shame. Then you obviously leave after two years. Um, you go back to Air for a season, and one of the first things that you did for Air um, when you go back was um. Score the winner against um, your old club to put them at the um, Coca-Cola Cup, as it was in coca League Cup. Um, that must have been a, a. I mean, you see a lot of modern-day players. You know, when they score against a former club, they do the, the hands, the hands-down thing. They don't want to celebrate. But for what I saw in the picture, um, you celebrating? To be honest, quite rightly.
0: Absolutely, you've got. To, I mean, that's uh, what do they call it? Virtue signalling, right? All this stuff. Uh, as a kind of new phenomenon where you show how virtue you shared by things. What you do, you do. You've played with a club and this is where probably players are, And not probably, definitely players are different for fans because I was born and brought up in Colmarnock so I was naturally a Colmarnock supporter uh, but I went to play football for Air United through however that came about, Kilmarnock's biggest rivals. So, Kelly fans and Air fans hate each other, but as a player, uh, for both clubs, Kilmarnock and Air, I don't hate either of the clubs or either of the sets of fans. I like them. Um, But whoever's paying your wages, whichever team you're playing for, is who you're trying to help win the game. So if you you happen to score a goal to win the game, then fine. That's what you do, and you celebrate because you won the game. If I'd playing for Air, I would do that. If playing for Comanica, I would do that. But I can understand why fans see it differently. But mm-hmm. fans, to my mind, have to understand why players see it differently as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, and uh, and there, and there is a difference, because. To a player, it's their, it's their livelihood, it's their job. And, and, and if I'm playing with Kilmarnock and I'm getting 500 quid a week and Rangers want to sign me and Kilmarnock fans hate Rangers, and I go to Rangers because they want to pay me £5,000 a week. I mean, <laughs> oh, should they go there? Because, I mean, it's just nonsense. You know, and, and and it's it's reality. Football, and I understand football is all about emotion, and you know there's a, there, there's the passion there, and there's the, the you're dedicated to your club and that type of thing. But that doesn't mean you lose all sense of reality either. You know, you've got to, you you've got to keep a fun grip on reality. And to be fair, I think most fans do. It's just a kind of noisy minority that pick up these kind of things and they're totally unrealistic and and, uh, uh, and they're hypocrites as well because if it was them that was in the position they would do the same thing as well yeah. but that's the thing about football uh, and we all live by that but funny thing about that goal I scored at, uh, at rugby park um, I hadn't scored for Kelly in the two years I was playing in a kind of holding midfield role, so I wasn't really up the part. although I was playing in the same position for here, and I managed to get up the parts. so that's no, no real excuse uh, somebody did a shot and it bounced off the keeper big Drago Lekovic who was a fantastic goalie and a brilliant character bounced off him and he tried to recover it but I managed to nip in and get in front of him and poke it in the goal but uh, I had a good laugh about that afterwards although he wasn't uh, too, too happy about it, but Drago, was, he was a, a, a great character I remember when when I was at Comarnock uh, Drago and he spoke in this kind of broken, it was like kind a man well a faulty, faulty tower, this kind of broken English, you know um, and Alec Totten come in towards the end of one season and says right boys uh, we've got other the players in and says right boys, we've got a trip that we've been offered this trip at the end of the season to go the, uh, South Korea to play in the Korea Cup, which is a big thing over there. You know the Korea Cup, big thing. The South Korean national team playing. There'll be a team for Brazil and there'll be a team for Chile, I think it was. Uh, and it's an end of season trip. And it's uh, if you're there, we'll be there for ten days. Uh, we'll play two games, and if we, depending on how we go on, we might be in the final. In which case, we'll be there for. 18 days or something. So they're 10 days or 18. And if you win, the uh, the winners, uh, the winning club gets a hundred thousand pounds, which will be split up between everybody involved, you know. But you've got to win to get that. So that's going to be split up. So there'll be a squad of 22 or whatever going over, right? So. Uh, I was quite pally with big Drago Lekovic and he told me the stories when he was... He'd been a goalkeeper since he was a wee toddler with coaches in these days over in Yugoslavia. And he played with Red Star Belgrade. And when he was old enough to go, to be in the, the first team the Red Star on the bench with him, they just, Red Star Belgrade made all their money by playing exhibition matches all around the world, you know, because they were a big name at the time. And they would go to all these countries to play these exhibition And he said... Uh, So what would happen was the chairman would come in, I would go over to Germany to play Bayern Munich in an exhibition match. All good, he says, because we always got a big brown envelope full of money, you know. So after the game, uh, after these exhibition games, the chairman would come in to the dressing room with all these envelopes full of money, he said, and he would give each player an envelope full of money. And he says, "Oh, big money, he says, he used to call me Mr. Roger. Mr. Roger, Mr. Roger, big money, big money. You know, and I'm saying, oh, well, that's, that's great, Drago. So remember after Alec taught me this meeting, they would mentioned 100,000, right? Went into the shower, again, getting a shower, and Drago's on the shower next to me, and he says, Mr. Roger, Mr. Roger, he says, Mr. Alex, he say, he say 100,000 pounds. Is that each? And I says, no, no, that's no each, Drago. You're not Red Star Bowl grade now. You'll get a bit you'll get a bit two grand or something like that if we win. But we'll know what it trust me. <laughs> so uh and I used to have a fairly laugh with big Drago he was funny.
1: Yeah, innocent. Um so yeah, yeah, you so here was one of the last clubs that you played at. Um you mentioned your spell party. You had a wee spell when they um your last club before you retired. Um and then you went back to uh, to, to manage a club um for a season and a half. Um how, do, how, how did you find the management game?
0: I actually went back um, I was back living in here at the time um, and myself and my brother-in-law just started the business that we, we, we run now um, and what happened at Erie United was Bill Barr had had a period of big investment in the club they were full-time, they'd got to a couple of finals I think, trying to get into Premier League and Bill Barr was the chairman and uh, he had he had funded the whole thing. Bill Barr was a very wealthy guy, he'd funded the whole thing. Uh, but what happened when that came to an end, uh, Bill Barr was retiring for his business all the rest of it, came to an end uh, and he was stepping back from the club So the the new chairman uh, was uh, Mr Cameron. I'm just trying to get his first name. Lachlan Cameron's his son. Uh, I'll get his first name. I have terrible memory, as I said. But uh, So he, Mr Cameron, took over the club as as chairman. Uh, At at that point, Campbell Money was the manager. Uh, They were all full time. Uh, So come the end of the season, uh, the story goes whether it's right enough or not story goes that there was a big tax bill or there was a big bill came in f- from the revenue and Mr Cameron uh, said to the secretary at the time what happens with this big bill here? He said I've never seen this before he says oh no uh, Bill Barr usually just writes a cheque for that and and uh, the, the fellow said oh well I'm not so sure about that you know <laughs> mega bucks you know uh, so, at that point, um, they had to restructure the club and the revenue. So, the, the word goes, uh, let them have a repayment plan so they could pay it back. So, uh, Campbell Money was told, end of the season, club will begin back full-time, all the full-time, sorry, part-time, all the full-time contracts will end. Uh, And at that, Campbell just be sounded. Okay, well, I'll I'll go now then. So he left. Um, uh, uh, Mr. Cameron, I'm going to get his first name just shortly. He got in a few locals uh, who were air United supporters onto the board to work for the club to try and get himself through this period of paying this debt back, and they had. a lawyer, an ex-banker and an ex-entrepreneur guy about a bit of money to come in and just work for the club to get them through the hard period. So a part of mine, Mark Shanks, was made the manager, and myself and Robert Riley, um, and another fellow, I can't remember, isn't he, <laughs> uh, were brought in as coaches. So towards the end of the season, uh, Mark left before... Uh, There was maybe about five or six games to go, I think, and Mark left. Uh, And the chairman said to me, do you want to just take over uh, as a manager because Mark's leaving and then see how things go after that. So it was really not a good time for me because I had just started this business. My, My business partner was saying to me, What's happening with this? Because they were full time players there, sometimes I was nipping down to take the full time players in training during the day, which means I was away for the business. Um, and I said, Well, it's only full time for a few months and then it's going part time. So it'll be training at night after that. So no be away for the business type thing so much. So it um, wasn't a good time for me to do it anyway. But uh, anyway, they survived in the league at the end of the season. A lot of the full-time players. They all knew they were leaving, although they hadn't been told, because they knew the club was going part-time. So it was a bit of a flogging a dead horse to try and get them across the finishing line. They just survived with the skin of their teeth. So at the end of the season, brought in loads of players for the juniors, 50 quid a week. Uh, So there was half kind of ex-seniors and half juniors in the the team. Uh, Some great ex-seniors, some great seniors, players like Jérôme Barai who's a fantastic professional Um we, Paddy Connolly as well, fantastic x and d United, brilliant professional guys that were there to, to help, the, help the club out in these hard times and really I was doing it because, and I was doing it for virtually nothing because they never had any money in the club so the manager's wage And the coach's wage, I put together and I split it with my coach, Robert Riley, so that we were both getting the same, because it was hardly anything anyway, so that he was getting a wee bit more. Tommy Tate was a coach and gave him some of our wages. Then Gus Hollis, who had been the ground staff, uh, the kit man at Comarnock, who was a fantastic uh, character, brought him in to do the kit, and we gave him some of our wages as well. Not I'm, I'm saying some, some like twenty five pound because we're hard again, and so that his wages are a wee bit so it could pay his petrol at least. So really hard times. So uh, but we, we but we managed to do well in the league. You know we were we, 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 the team were actually playing pretty well, uh, and kind of halfway through the second season we'd signed uh, Ryan Stevenson, who was a good player, played with St Johnson he was a near United supporter and he came into the team, we'd, we'd got him on loan and then there was a talk about signing him, uh, we had also signed a what's his name again he was a right good player at the United uh, does all the coaching in Glasgow now with a oh, what's his name again now? No, I can't remember his name either a really, Andy McLaren Andy McLaren who was a striker come winner, winger, who was a Premier League player and we were playing the same division. So he had been banned for the game for like <laughs> so many months because of something they'd done or get sent off or Sora or a ref or something. So he's without a club. So we would spoke to him and he's a nice guy, but he's just a bit passionate about football and gets carried away with refs and everything. Mm-hmm. So we'd signed him and we knew he would do well. We'd just signed Ryan Stevenson again. So towards the end of the season, we knew we were going to start run, uh, coming up. But we had had a bad run over Christmas, where we had pl- been playing well enough. But just that, what I'm talking about, we had been drawing the game or losing one, a late goal or something like that, so we hadn't had a good run. But with Andy McLaren knew coming in, this goal scoring was a problem. That would be that sort of it, and we fancied that we could get in the playoff positions before the end of the season. But anyway, what I learned from I can a long way of saying, I have learned something about management, is the people that run the club don't listen to you as the manager. They listen to external people. So when you're telling them what I've just told you, when Andy comes in, that'll solve it. We've got goal scoring problems. It's affected a wee bit of the confidence. When Andy comes in, they'll start climbing because they've been doing well previous to that uh, and we can get in the playoffs they don't listen to you, they listen to yeah. the people that sat behind them in the stand and all that kind of thing you know. Mm-hmm. and uh, so the chairman said to me uh, hey, I was going to make a change because we wee bad run that you've had and all that, and I said that's fine because it's not skin off my back I'm, <laughs> I'm a bit busy anyway doing what I'm trying to get a business up and running I did feel really, really sorry for the assistant manager, Robert Riley and Tom Tate, because I think they could have taken over um, when I left, because I was going to leave anyway at the end of the season. Uh, then they could have taken over and because they were really dedicated to you know. I yeah. spent a lot, a lot of hours and uh, a lot of hours, but I, I think the thing that I take away from it is I'm glad I'm no, I don't have to rely on trying to get a job in football because it's not a normal business where you can speak to people on a level where they understand what you're talking about. Because a lot of the people, not no fault of their own, but a lot of the people that run clubs don't really know much about football. Um, and they listen to other people that don't know much about football that sit behind them in the stand. Uh, so I feel sorry for, I have a lot of sympathy for managers and coaches because I appreciate how difficult a job it is under the constraints that they've got um, financially uh, and training facilities. Just everything about lower league football now is really, really difficult.
1: Yeah, and it's going to get worse, um, with, um The no money coming in, as we've talked about at the start. Um, I mean... You you also had a good playing career, um, you had that brief spell coaching, but you've been out of um, football for quite a while. Um, I'm, and with the lots of things, you seem to be enjoying it. Um, what just what is life like away away from football for you?
0: Well, it's been busy because I say I started a own company, so I I work, uh, spend a lot of time uh, doing this. Um. Got two daughters as well, three granddaughters, uh, all live locally, so spend a lot of time with them as well. Um, I try and get the out game my golf on a Saturday, and go to the occasional, very occasional football game if it's on. So, um I, I've got a pretty busy, pretty busy schedule, busy life really. Uh, football, have to be honest, doesn't play a really big part in that anymore, although I keep. Obviously I watch the T V and if there's any interesting games that I think will be good life. I don't watch a lot of life. I prefer the just all the good bits and the highlights mm-hmm. and the controversial bits. So so I keep in touch with it through that and I go to the occasional game. Um but uh football's changed a lot. Um sometimes for the better, sometimes no for the better, but uh, things coming in with the VAR and all that type of stuff, uh, just like a like a different game uh, through the years for when Celtic won the, the European Cup all them years ago when football was played in the style it was played with the boots that they wore and the balls that they played with to what you see now it's about like golf and such the equipment has changed so much that it makes it a different game the rules have changed as well the refereeing has changed I suppose guys from my era would say it's a more continental style of refereeing there's no so much physical contact and that type of thing which is not a bad thing in particular but uh, it's, uh, it makes it difficult to compare who's the best player and all that type of thing because it's just a d- totally different game now
1: Yeah definitely Um Oh, I mean, your time's been fantastic. I've just got a few um, slow fire questions. Was uh, discussed to finish this. Um, one of my friends, um, his name's Tim Donnelly, he's a Celtic supporter, wanted me to bring this up. Um, there was a Aberdeen Celtic game in 1989 season, um, where you missed um, a set with a header, and he only wants to bring this up because Archie McPherson's commentary says, "How did he miss it? Good grief! You, how much do you remember that?" Um.
0: Well, to be fair, it's only one of many that I've missed. <laughs> I wasn't the best of finishers, uh, but uh, I can't recall the exact header he's talking about. But the Archer McPherson one is, rings a bell because one of my, one, one thing I remember for Dundee, played with a guy called Stuart Rafferty, and Stuart and I, I'm not that boy. I missed a chance. Fine, you missed a chance. Stuart was quite sensitive about these kind of things uh, um, and he was very self aware about missing type, how we played and that type of thing, the marks in the Sunday mail, how many marks did I get out oh, of 10, you know, that type of thing so I remember we were out after a game we we used to go out for a, a drink or, or a meal with the, with the wives and then we would Sometimes go back to, to have a wee party in somebody's house or that. So we went back to his house one night after a game on a Saturday where he had missed an absolute sitter. And mm. all he would talk about was, oh, what Archie McPherson was going to say about this sitter they'd missed, you know. And uh, he was fretting about it all, Chris. So, Maybe they'll no show it. Maybe they'll no show it. And I'm saying, well, uh, if it's an absolute sitter, they're bound to show it. He's like, oh, you're probably right. Maybe they'll show it. So anyway, fretting about this all night. And sports scene come on in Scottsboro, it was. And their game come on, and it's been through the game, and he's going, I think we're past it, past it. So we're maybe he's maybe no good. No, is this? And I'm saying, No, 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 we're not past it yet, we're not past it yet. It's still to come in the game, yeah. And and eventually it came, and it, as the build up came, it came on, he recognised it. He says, Oh, no, here it's, it's, here it's, they're showing it, they're showing it. And it came on, and Archie was commenting, and says, an anti Rafferty, and Rafferty's sure. And uh, and Archie's comment was, and that comes into the pathetic category. <laughs> and Rafferty said, head, "Head in his hands, like, oh on." No. <laughs> that's,
1: that's brilliant. I'll, I'll send you the YouTube clip, clip of that game, and you'll um, hopefully recall it. Well, um,
0: tell your tell your pal. It doesn't really bother me because I missed millions. So yeah.
1: Exactly. And you stuck a penalty against this team away in the 1990 Cup final and um, scored against them at Parkhead. So, yeah, we can always bring that up. Um, so, some of the other questions. Um, if, um, there's two Johns in this podcast, usually. So, there's myself and someone who we call F Bomb John. He asks, um, what modern day manager would you have liked to play under? Modern day
0: manager, um, stuck Is this in Scotland or just anywhere? Anyway, two that stick out for me are uh, Klopp at Liverpool, Jürgen Klopp, and Man City's manager, whose name is... Guardiola. What's his name?
1: Pep Guardiola.
0: Pep Guardiola, right, because I forget people's names. Pep Guardiola, those two, uh, I would like to have played under any of those two, yeah.
1: Definitely. What's the favourite prank that um, you've performed with people and and don't say you haven't because Brian Irvin's told me that you were the um, the the joker of the team. Favourite one? Or one that springs to mind?
0: Honestly? It's that long ago. I mean, I'm 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 not denying that that, that we get up to all sorts of things. But as I've said to you repeatedly, I do have a terrible memory, and I'm finding it difficult to remember that long ago. Um, I, I honestly can't remember. I can tell you my, my best story about about that type of thing. Go mm-hmm, cool for that. Fergie was always finding players all the time. And my favourite fine story is when John Hewitt got... <laughs> Pulled into Fergie's office one day and Fergie fined him for overtaking him in his car the day before. And I said, overtake? I says, Aye, because there was a bit of snow and he said it was dangerous and I shouldn't have been, so he's fined me 40 quid. <laughs> so, so, so that was my favourite fine, so, fining him for overtaking him in his motor. I <laughs> don't you wouldn't get away with that nowadays, with all these HR departments and
1: everything, you know. Oh, no, I, think, I think the police would have something to say as well. Um, you don't need me um tell you who asked this question. Um, how many times on average do you watch Bad Boys Inc on YouTube?
0: Um, I've I can I've watched them twice because I've made two videos for them. Yes. <laughs> Both of the time I put it on and watched them. But to be fair, I did a wee bit of research, so maybe three times. Three times. And that, yeah. that's it. So three times. In total, not on average.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, um, Ali's actually coming on, um, since if you have any messages afterwards, we can um, do that for him. <laughs>
0: um, three times in total, tell him. But if he's got any recommendations, I'll, I'll watch it. <laughs> I'll
1: do. Um, what's, So we've covered your toughest opponent. Um, who had the worst dress sense at any of the clubs that you were at?
0: Dale Tenkat, the Dutchman at Aberdeen, without a doubt, and still does. Because you'll see him on Facebook. It looks like a happy. But the Dutch players in general were very bad. Dutch people in general are very bad dressers. Very bad dressers. Wear all these brightly coloured checked things and orange trousers and yellow jackets. and I mean, it's horrendous. And uh, they, they, they lived up to that. We had five Dutch players at Aberdeen. And. Uh, were, well, Hans Hillhouse was no bad. He was no bad. He was pretty sober, but the rest of them were pretty horrendous dressers. But Theo Tenka, he took the biscuit.
1: <laughs> what was your favourite lads' holiday um, or pre-season tour with them? Any of your clubs?
0: Um, we uh, fun enough. We had two. We, we, at Aberdeen. We used to go to Holland on, and Germany. Which were good tra- pre-season trips, but we once went a trip we ever been, um, and it, it must have been because the club were offered it and it was up and they, they were getting paid or whatever to go, but they took us to um, to no, bloody Hawaii, where old John stays out there. Uh, what do they call that place again? We the ex-British colony, they've got policemen with the English tall hats on over it. An, an island in the Caribbean. Or that way. It's not Barbados, is it? No, No Barbados, no. Uh,
1: you're asking the wrong person, to be honest.
0: When the last big... Uh, car, what, what they call, Elton John's got a house there, that's all I know. Anyway, I'll remember it. it's an ex-British colony. It was like 98 degrees, and we were meant to be training then our pre-season training, and that. But the club took it because... They got a good deal, you know. Somebody approached them. I will give you this money. Bring them over. Play two games against the national team. Uh, Christ, that's terrible. I can't even remember the name. Of it. The national. Play two games against the national team, and uh, that's that's what we had to do to get the club would get paid however much money. So they, they they took them up on it, and we went there and uh, did virtually no training for. The ten days we were there, because it was too long so it was a pretty, a waste of time, but a great holiday. Excellent. And Theo Snelders, in particular, I think's been back two or three times since it was that good. Uh, but as a as a pre-season training trip, absolute nonsense, you know.
1: Yeah, but good for team bonding, etc. Um, and final question: You knew this was coming because I'd mentioned it. Um, name my best eleven um, from your time as a player and manager?
0: Yeah. Um, with a few, few goalkeepers, obviously two at Aberdeen, Thales, Snell and Jim it's hard to pick between the two. Uh, here United, when I joined there, with a goalie called Hugh Sprott, who was a right character. Hugh Sprott uh, used to wear a, a, a razor blade earring in his ear when they played. And when he played Celtic, he would have a blue goalie top on we played Rangers, he would have a green goalie top on you know? uh, and he was a bit of a character, he was a good goalie Drago Lekovic to come on, I thought it was a terrific goal, but certainly Theo and Jim Leighton are hard to pick between the fact that Theo replaced Jim Leighton and it was his own Jim, Jim, Jim Leighton had never been there, it tells you how good he was he was fantastic if I could say Theo Leighton I would say Theo Leighton, but probably can't I'll say Theo Snelder's in because it's in more in the modern era. Jim's a bit old-fashioned now, so I'd like to say Theo Snelder's for goalie. And right back, i uh, better say Stuart McKimmy, because if I don't, I'll get a phone call. If he's listening to it, I know that he listens to any football new days, I don't think, but Stuart McKimmy, left back would be toss-up between Davy Robertson and Tosh McKinley, who was at Dundee at the time I was yep. there, who was a fantastic player. Um, difficult to choose between the two, but because Davy Robertson such a comedian, I think i will pick him. Best comedy show on the telly, that yeah, Cashmere thing. Absolutely <laughs> magic. Um, Centre halves, well, Willie Miller and Alan McLeish obviously could pick yourself yeah. for for me, Brian Irvine obviously, makes a mention. And a fella called Ian McAllister that played at Aire United, who was a terrific player, played in the Nationals under boys' teams as well, but stayed at air all his days. I'm sure there was teams in for him, but stayed at air all his days, Ian McAllister. But certainly Willie and Alec, by far the best half halves Midfield, probably best midfield player i played was Jim Beck. Yeah. Um in terms of central midfield playmaking that type of thing. Um but as a as a kind of midfield going forward player there was a guy who played with right air called Brian McLaughlin, who came from Celtic. He had a really bad injury. Big William McVee injured him badly in his uh, one of his knees in a, in a reserve game that Celtic were playing. Brian used to be at Celtic as a youngster. Uh, and uh, was hampered by this horrendous knee injury for the rest of his career. It was tipped to be the next Kenny O'Gleish by McLaughlin and uh, played with me here um, and was an absolutely outstanding player. Both one of these guys. You didn't know what foot he kicked with. He could kick with any foot. Balanced and passes, dribbling, nutmegs, everything. He was a fantastic player. So definitely have him in the midfield somewhere. Um along with Jim Bett. Uh, left side Peter Rear, wide wide in midfield. Um, and right side a guy I think extremely underrated, Paul Mason. Mm-hmm. He was one of these guys that made the game he made the game look easy, Paul, you know, he was a he was a good runner. He didn't appreciate how quickly he could run. But then really aware and and a thing that he was he was known for was his finishing. We seen him at training. He was a great finisher, Paul Mason. Um, and uh, he scored quite a few important goals for us and created a lot of goals as well. But very unassuming guy and an unassuming player. He unless you kind of appreciated what he was doing, yeah. you, know, you might know not so too much. But he was involved in a lot of major things and creating things in the game. So midfield up front, striker probably number one behind Seelhouse who was an incredible player um, and along way uh, at that time Charlie Nicholas played alongside him we didn't see the best of Charlie Nicholas I remember seeing Charlie when he was like a 17, 18 year old playing for Celtic Reserves at Air United one night he scored the hat track and you just, never heard of him. says, who's this guy here? He's scored another a, a fantastic player. And uh, went on to have a great career, maybe not as good a career, back to the thing you think you could always do, do better, but Charlie was a fantastic player. Uh, but another Aberdeen good friend of mine who was a great striker and wide player was John Hewitt, who scored a lot of big goals for the club in the cup finals and, uh, and played a big part in the history of the club. Jim Bet said that uh, when he seen Johnny coming through as a young player, he was he was the best young player he'd ever seen. So, although probably on the bench and just behind Hans and Charlie Nicholas and another guy, I would mention the big uh, big Rambo, Alan McInally, who at Aire United was a. I seen the early stages of him developing, and he was a was a phenomenon as a player, big Alan. You know, was big. Built like a 200 meter sprinter and big handful for defenders, you know. Probably later on in his career, though, that uh, when he was at Aston Villa and Bayern Munich, seen the best of him. Unfortunately, his career, like John Hughes', was cut short by injury in his late 20s. Yeah. But, uh, but no, for, for players that I played a lot with, Hans House and Charlie Nicholas would be the strikers.
1: And who's managing that team?
0: Well. It would be tough to be, although it was only for a couple of months, it would be tough to be Alec Ferguson, Sir Alec Ferguson,
1: Yeah.
0: as you say. But, uh, uh, I was always amazed at Alec Ferguson, how you could look at him in match of the day when he was over 70. The camera would cut to the dugout and he would be standing there. The game might be not going to plan. And you could see him seething and he's face just seething there you know and you think how can a guy who's been in the game so long still have that passion and emotion in him every week it's just incredible.
1: incredible yeah yeah he's a um yeah he's definitely one of the greatest um football managers of all time um without doubt um well robert thank you very much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you um great stories about your career and um, all the best to you and um, hope your business um, keeps thriving and uh, you come through the other end okay?
0: Good John, okay thanks buddy.
1: Cheers mate, thank you
0: appreciate that, take it easy (laughs)